J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Sahana vavatu, sahana bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahai, tejasvinavatitamastu, mavitvishavahai. Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles, and welcome to Eric Kahane, my producer, and to Kevin Kelly, my guest today. From the Vedic perspective, intelligence is a term used to measure the capacity of a person to tell the difference between two things. So if I hold up my two index fingers and put them side by side, they appear superficially to be the same until I notice that they're mirror images of each other and until I notice that there are uh, a variety of differences between them. And so really intelligence means in the Vedic worldview the function of discrimination or differentiation and the capacity of the mind to be able to make that distinction to be able to make fine distinctions would be the way that in Vedic psychology we define intelligence. Kevin, uh, when thinking about AI, artificial intelligence, that is an intelligence that comes from humans, meaning that it is one that is man-made. Does AI somehow go beyond some kind of heuristic process or high-speed brute force computing methodology? AI is a term that isn't well defined and it means lots of things right now um generally what happens is when we do something that we used to call a ai artificial intelligence we stop calling it that so if 50 years ago if we had siri everybody would say it's obviously an artificial intelligence but now that we have it, we say, well, it's just machine learning. It's just a conversational interface. That's not really AI. AI is something else that we can't do yet. And as soon as we do that, then we will redefine it as that which we can't do yet. <laughs> so, in other words, the goalposts are always moving. Exactly. And, and I think in 50 years from now, we'll still be talking about the fact that we don't really have AI yet. So... Um, but all along, we keep having we making uh, things artificially smarter and smarter. And so I like to talk about artificial smartness because it takes away some of the baggage, uh, cultural baggage around intelligence. Because the honest truth is that we have no idea what intelligence is. We don't have any good metrics for it. IQ is not a good metric for what we're thinking we're talking about. We don't really can't apply it to animals, for instance. Um, what has more IQ, a parrot or a dolphin 
or a chimpanzee or a dog. And um, uh, the truth is that intelligence is much more complicated. It's kind of like an, probably like an ecosystem with many, maybe dozens, if not scores, maybe hundreds of different cognitive processes things that we would say today like um, perception or deductive reasoning or symbolic reasoning or spatial reasoning or emotional intelligence, um, long-term memory. All these are kind of the ingredients and they're going to be arranged in many different ways. And, um, and they, of course, vary from person to person already in humans. But when we go into the synthetic artificial world, we're going to engineer many whole zoos of different species of um, minds and intelligences. And some will be expert and exceed humans in certain dimensions. And others won't necessarily do that. Um, you know, we have AIs or we have these uh, machine learning systems that are making recommendations on Netflix that don't do lots of things that we do, but they do many things we do much better. And um, so I think the, the, the picture that you may want to have in your mind thinking about artificial intelligence is, is first of all, to think of them in plural, many different types, diverse species, and um, that most of them are going to be thinking very differently from us. Uh, and, and that that difference is actually their main benefit is because they, they don't think like us. The reason why we want the um, AI in a car driving the car is because they don't drive like humans. And humans are terrible, terrible drivers. We, human drivers kill one, other, one million other people, other humans a year. And it's like uh, AIs can do much better than that. Hmm. There's a, an interesting concept I'd like to explore with you. Uh, in my tradition, the Vedic worldview from ancient India, there's an idea that is shared somewhat by modern quantum physicists, not all, but some, that consciousness itself is a priori. It's a field, and our brains are like a transducer that taps into that consciousness field. In other words, the brain is not the source of consciousness, but the brain is the means whereby consciousness is accessed. And... I'm just interested to know, do you foresee artificial intelligence, however we define it at any stage, as having self-awareness or ultimately a consciousness of self? I think we can program that in, yes. Um, uh, already um, there is a need for being able to explain what happens in these black boxes. So some of these AIs are very complicated already. They have multiple layers and they're making decisions. They're making decisions for us. They're making decisions about who gets a mortgage say, or um, you know, what, what you should watch next or whether uh, an X-ray, if somebody has cancer or not by looking at the X-rays. And um, oftentimes, well, most of the time we have no idea how they make these decisions and, in some cases, they can actually be biased in certain dimensions and we're completely unaware of it. So there's uh, been a, a movement to try and do something called explainable AI so that the AI can kind of explain itself. And the only way that, that, that we know how to do that is to basically build another 
AI or another layer of AI that monitors the AI and goes inside and extracts out um, patterns that says, well, um, here's, here's kind of the reasons why it decided this. And so in a certain sense, this is kind of like a proto consciousness. It's, it's, it's a, it's a layer that's observing and representing the entire system. So it's, 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 a, it's a self awareness. And, um, so we've already begun to try in, uh, to try to program that in. I would, I would also say that there are going to be many examples like the driving examples where we, probably will decide we don't want it to be conscious. Um, and so uh, consciousness is a continuum. It's like anything else. And there's going to be many, many varieties of it. It's not binary. It's not like it's there or not there. It's, it's like all these other things. They're, they're, it's there in degrees and there in diversity and many different uh, gradations, many different types. And so we will decide that this AI here would benefit from some level and some type of self-awareness and this one here doesn't need it and this one here needs a whole lot of it and maybe more of it than we have or more of a different type than we have and so um, uh, it's just another ingredient in the mix of things that um, we can engineer that's a great answer thank you so much kevin um on the question of morality, yeah, morality seems to have some fluidity over time. For example, it might be circumstantial as opposed to absolute. We could even say that at a given time, it's regional. Uh, people's responses to local laws of nature and the demands of those on a culture. Um, but ultimately, we can also say that what we consider to be moral might be an adaptive function. From the Vedic perspective, morality is the human attempt to parallel and to reproduce um, the way that nature's own intelligence operates with reference to the need of the time. In other words, we are, we are a reflection of the underlying field, our emotional reflection of the underlying field uh, from which our individual consciousness uh, finds its source. When we look at morality being adaptive, uh, it must be adaptive. I mean, we have examples in, if we just look at the cultural use of the word killing and murder, um, you know, we could uh, say in the Ten Commandments as given by Rebbe Moshe, Moses, um, delivered from, as he called it, from God to the people. And the first commandment is, you know, thou shalt not kill. And yet, in the same document, the Bible, uh, we see a reference to God being um, pleased with uh, Saul, King Saul, because he killed the Philistines, read Palestinians, in their thousands, whereas he was very pleased with King David because King David killed them in their hundreds of thousands. Um, so here we have God saying, don't do it, and we have God saying, I'm very, very pleased if you do it you know, to the to these people. <laughs> and, you know, so the moment you make a rule, then you have to make a thousand exceptions to that rule. All these exceptions, amendments to the Constitution, if you like. So the Vedic worldview is that the human attempt to document and to memorialize 
what was natural to do in the past is a failed attempt at morality. The correct approach to morality is to attune oneself to the functioning laws of nature as they are functioning at the moment, what the needs of evolution are at the at this exact moment, and to be an expressive outlet for what that is. In other words, for our individuality to realize and live within its cosmic status, rather than our individuality somehow being this independent thing that's looking around for a rule book. Um, following on from that concept of knowing quotes-unquotes right from quotes-unquotes wrong, to what extent would AI have in its advanced forms the capacity to be adaptive and monitor change, monitor as we seem to do, what the need of the time is actually? Well, th there's a whole burgeoning field of ethics and morality for AIs and robots. There's a whole association right now. Everybody's working on this, these problems of um, embedding into these systems um, senses of ethics and morality. And um, it's actually not that difficult to do because in a certain sense, it's, just, it's, just, it's a code, right? In the past, it's talked about the code of honor and stuff. So there's a code. The, 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 and, and we can embed it in different ways and um, at different levels. We can have it adaptive. We can have it relativistic. We can have it uh, situational. But the, the, the challenge that, that the people doing this are uncovering, and, and, and just in brief, um, there's lots of reasons why we want to do this for practical reasons, and um, the need for it is already there. There's the famous you know, trolley problem, which is um, in, in a self-driving car. If a car has an accident and it, has, it is veering, and, and, and it could veer towards, you know, uh, a grandmother or three grandmothers or, or five kindergartens or vice versa. Does which way does it want to veer or should it have a priority to protect the, the passenger or, or, or the pedestrian? And um, those ultimately are um, questions that we give a pass on to us as human drivers. We we don't hold ourselves responsible for making those split-second decisions, but in the AIs, everything has to be thought of beforehand, and so we have to make those decisions now, and they are ultimately ethical and moral decisions. The difficulty we have in, in embedding this into the, our mind children of machines is that we humans have very shallow, inconsistent, not very robust ethics or moralities ourselves. We, we, we don't have ready answers for these things. We don't know how to sort them out. We are inconsistent and, and shallow. And so um, to program it in, we actually have to sort it out ourselves. We have to come to some consensus and go deeper and much more cons logically consistent and rational or whatever. And um, that's, that's going to take some time. And in the end, we will be better for it. Um, it will improve our own um, standing, our own understanding. And this process is what I would, you know, why I say that um, 
AIs and robots are going to make us better humans. I agree with that entirely. I think we're going to discover that we individually, not in any science fiction sense, but we individually are artificial intelligence. What we're now beginning to discover is that in fact we, individual humans, are a production. Uh, we are a production of cosmic intelligence. We are the AI, if you like, of cosmic intelligence. And we're only just now beginning to realize through tools that come from some ancient cultures, we're not the first to realize it, but we're realizing it en masse, that in fact, unless we embrace one, one universal whole morality, which is the morality of the universe itself, that in fact we, we run the risk of becoming an irrelevant uh, creation. I was rereading uh, at the behest of a rabbi the other day a part of the writing of Genesis in which it said, you know, quotes unquote, God created man in his own image. What occurred to me was the creator creating creators. In other words, uh, universal intelligence was reproducing itself. Now, if we are creators, then if we do the same thing that caused us to come into being, we've simply started another level of, of creation. And we are, as it were, the God to that level of creation. And, you know, we will create our own mythology out of this. You know, there'll be aspects of our AI that we create that we don't like, and we want to correct that. And the AI will get the feeling that God is angry with it. <laughs> and, and then we'll offer salvation to our AI, <laughs> and we'll make our AI more and more like us. And then there'll be the AI will find an opportunity to return back into the Godhead, which is the human, just as the humans right now are, through all their various religious and spiritual uh, attempts, trying to return to the Godhead out of which they find themselves coming. And so I think as a spokesperson for the Vedic worldview, uh, I would say that it's a perfectly natural thing for we, the created, to attempt also to, to create and to recreate and to make things better and bigger. And so long as the whole thing ends up, as we realize, it needs to move in the direction of being more and more sophisticated until eventually it graduates into elegance, then we're on the right track. And, you know, I think that uh, it's inevitable, I'd say, celebrate it. I think that the process of examining our creation, if we think of AI as our creation, forces us to examine the creator, meaning us. And it forces us to decide what we're about, what we stand for, what our ethics and values are, um, and to examine those things more critically than we otherwise would do. I, th I find that a fascinating concept. What do you th think might be the impact of virtual reality on our own perception of actual reality, if there is such a thing as actual reality? I mean, I'm a neuropsychologist. I look at the the way that our cognitive processes are really a function of model building. And when we look at the outside world, we're really looking at the world as we've modeled it. In what way might AI and virtual reality augment or distort or perhaps change the richness of our experience or 
change the way that we view the world and model it? I, th I think um, both virtual reality and artificial intelligence, uh, both of these fit into what I call the third culture, the, the, um, the nerd way of um, investigating the universe. So the, you know, the, the humanities use self-expression and in interior investigation and as a way to probe the universe and science uses experiments. Um, and neither of those have been very effective in kind of coming to understand what is reality or what is intelligence. But the nerd way is to make things as a way to investigate. So the way you investigate intelligence is you make intelligences and that those artificial intelligences become the telescope for understanding how the mind works because you keep trying to make them in many different ways as you make minds and you have lots of failures and you, you gradually will learn how to make artificial minds. And so, so that's, that's where the understanding comes from. And the same thing with, uh, um, reality. So, um, the thing with virtual reality is, is going to become the cyclotron for understanding reality because we will get to make it in virtual ways, many, many virtual ways, you know, it's kind of like trying this, trying that, removing this, removing that. Um, and so it, it'll be, it's going to be a huge instrument for us to understand what reality is as, as we continue to better and improve and, and explore the different ways in which to make it virtually. Can you just discuss what is reality then? Reality is only the state of consciousness of the experiencer. Um, I could sit in a room with someone who is in a different state of consciousness to me, more sophisticated or perhaps less consciousness, and at the end of an hour, if we gave a detailed interview of each of us about what was going on in that hour in that room and what was in the room, we would have two completely different answers. And this is why, since you know, all that really exists out there, the out there is really simply a model of what's in here. All that exists out there, the out there quotes unquote, is the state of consciousness of the observer. And this is why we have to have, you know, judges and um, adjudication and we have courts and things to try to figure out what is the, what is the public view of quotes unquote, what happened question mark. Five different people give five different accounts who are witnesses to the same phenomenon. Uh, objective science has also run into this. We we now have quantum mechanics that basically states that objects cannot exist independently of, of observers, whereas object science, which we worked with for a hundred years prior to that, to quantum mechanics, stated that objects exist independently of observers, uh, and that ob you know there is an object of reality. The most successful theory of modern science, which is quantum mechanics, states that there is no such thing as an object of reality. All realities are productions that are responses to the expectations of the observer. I think a virtual reality is simply another uh, set of stimuli which will be interpreted by the state of consciousness of the experiencer. So, for example, um, I have a seven-year-old 
who absolutely adores Minecraft, and he's created an entire world out of Minecraft. For him, uh, when I go into the Minecraft game with him, um, all kinds of wondrous and exciting things are happening, and there are values and ethics, and there are things that need, could be done, and there are opportunities, some of which are eschewed and some of which are embraced by the seven-year-old. Uh, for me, when I go into that world with him, uh, my perception of it is completely different to his. And perhaps, you know, my perspective is broader than his. I'm making the assumption that it is. Uh, that could be objectifiably challengeable. But, you know, I have a completely different experience in the Minecraft world to what my seven-year-old has when he goes into the Minecraft world. So virtual reality, just like what we call rea real reality, is interpretable. You know, what's out there, what's been experienced, it's simply a different set of stimuli. The so-called real world doesn't actually have an objective base. You know, when we say welcome back to reality, as opposed to virtual reality, what we're really saying is welcome back to your state of consciousness as it is at the moment. The stimuli are simply different, that's all. We have the stimuli of so-called reality, and then we have the stimuli of virtual reality, but what's inescapable is that you're still in the state of consciousness in which you find yourself, until you change that. Would it be fair to say, or to what extent would it be fair to say that artificial intelligence really is the building of an extended self? I think in many ways artificial intelligence itself is a misnomer. In a sense, what we're doing is we're creating extended self. Some of what we do could extend our own selves, um, but we will also manufacture new selves at the same time. I, I think it is an extension of evolution, and technology is an extension of evolution. We are extending evolution's um, propensity to make minds, but we're going to invent many new types of minds that can't exist in tissue, so that require other matrices and substrates. Um, and um, so, so the, the, the mind or the, the cognitive world, the new sphere that we're building is not necessarily just an extension of ours. It's an extension into new territories and there will be new selves as well. Um, so I, I think uh, children are a better model if, if we wanted to have some kind of relationship to it, then then extension of ourselves. There's no doubt that some of the stuff that we make, you know, we would wear or we would use to extend ourselves, but, but that's only part of the story. Mm. Before the electrical age, we were focused primarily on combustion for power production, and particularly in the last half century, there's been a, an emphasis on things like nuclear fission. In a sense... We could look at these approaches to power production as an attempt to harness some kind of destructive power. At this juncture, we've got solar energy and some far-off promise of nuclear fusion. Are there other power production sources being considered to power all of this? Where do you see the future of power production? Well, it, um, yeah, synthetic solar is you know, what is fusion? So fusion is basically trying to replicate what happens in the sun. Mm -hmm. So you're making an artificial sun. And um, uh, that's the next step, and that would be a huge quantum step in 
in the, the amount of power and the um, uh, the cheapness and the the cleanness of it would um, uh, really you know really change the equation and would be plenty of power for what we wanted to do. Um, be, beyond that, I don't I don't know, but um, uh, I, I think ubiquitous, you know, uh, solar fusion power, synthetic solar would take us for a very long time as far as I, I, I can see. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of political and business resistance to change in the area of power production. Uh, with the current rate of technological innovation and evolution, realistically, how close do you think we are to actually shifting the paradigm that drives these political and business resistances? Solar fusion, you know, it's been it's been on the cusp of happening for for decades. I, I don't know what the actual big conceptual hurdles are. They they are generating over in Berkeley. They are generating energy, but they're not generating more energy than they use. So that so it's not a commercially remotely commercially viable. So so, so that means you know that's probably decades away. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably many decades away from becoming commercially viable. So in, in the meantime, I think we're we're with uh, you know nuclear and and uh, um, nuclear you know gas, wind, solar, and um, uh, I don't I don't see I don't see any big change on the horizon sooner than a couple of decades away. I've heard you speak about the post-productive economy. Would you define that concept for our listeners? Perhaps give some examples of how it might affect them directly. Productivity is not a very good metric for understanding the true wealth, or how wealth is generated. Um, it, productivity as a measurement is something that... Um, uh, came out of the industrial age, and it's really good for robots and um, you know and, and AI, and that the the true human genius is in the arena where um, we uh, are basically inefficient, like science and innovation, which is inherently an inefficient process, and so. The problem is, is that the kind of the dials and the metrics that we have right now to kind of evaluate how we're doing economically are all somewhat based around, at the core of it, uh, productivity as a, as a concept, uh, producing more per minute, per dollar, whatever it is. And it doesn't really take into account that a lot of what we most value are, are new things that don't have any history and so therefore their production per hour or whatever doesn't isn't really meaningful in other words we look at like refrigerators we can talk about well how many refrigerators can you make per dollar per hour but it doesn't talk about the fact that refrigerators have more and more functions than they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago and those additional functions aren't really being captured in the economic concepts or measurements and yet those are the, the things that we that's why we that's why we're buying them mm-hmm. and so um, what we want to do is go beyond productivity as a signal or as a 
as a metric as probably the only metric that we have in terms of understanding, um, you know, where, whether we're going in, in the right direction. And so um, what we want to be, I mean, what the, what the economy is really doing, what we really want to do with our lives is, is actually not trying to churn out more paintings per hour, but you know, better paintings. Yes. We don't want to necessarily like, you know, uh, measure how many, glasses of wine we drink for a year we want to have better wine and so um uh that so we we don't really have mechanisms to promote that because we don't have me mechanisms to measure that so uh, so post productive would mean um focusing on those aspects of 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 life and the economy that would enhance improvements, diversity, um, new options and possibilities versus the old model of um, just uh, how efficient a person or a plant was. Hmm. Kevin, um, regarding employment, you know, all the hackneyed examples, I can just come up with one just to kind of get the ball started. Truck drivers make up a huge uh, percentage of the employed population in the United States. There's millions of truck drivers. And when trucks are able to be driven much more efficiently by non-humans, uh, by AI, uh, where do people find employment as we replace ourselves uh, with machines? I think for a couple of things, one is the, the truck drivers who will lose the jobs. It's going to probably happen a lot more gradually than some people might expect. I don't think it's going to happen in a year or two. I think it might take decades. Mm -hmm. So that gives, that gives time for people to be retrained. And I'm much more optimistic about the ability of people to adapt, including people who are older. Well, uh, I'm not a big fan of the U.S. military, but I am impressed by one thing that they do, which is they are able to train people, and they can train uh, and retrain and and um, give skills to people who have very few skills at all, and give them very high uh, skills. You know, radar operators and radar repair people, um, in mass. You know, in in bulk and. So we have the capability to um, to re-educate and retrain people, um, if and we have the technological and uh, you know social capability of doing it. But whether we have the political, that's a, that's a separate thing. So I think that um, we can change. And then the question which you asked is, well, what are they going to be doing? Well, first of all. You know, uh, a, a million auto-driven trucks are going to need a whole new class of people to repair them, to keep mm -hmm. them going. Uh, not just the mechanics, but the other aspects of the AI. There will be, you know, AI strategists, AI trainers, AI facilitators. I mean, um, uh, I think it's very hard to imagine the kinds of jobs because if you look at the jobs that people were doing today, I was just got off the phone with a, let me see his, he was a social media strategist. That did not exist uh, 
I mean, how would you explain it to the farmer 150 years ago whose jobs are going to disappear? Yes. Well, yeah, you're going to be a social media strategist. And um, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, there's just so much missing from that. So I think... Um, I, you know, I can, we can make we can make up some we can make up some occupations, but they'll just seem totally ridiculous. Yeah, because uh, the entire the entire ecosystem that they're going to be participating in doesn't exist right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that we will continue to invent new desires. So social media strategies exist because we turn out that we crave um, social media, that we crave connecting with people and sharing photographs um, with our friends. That was not a desire that we knew we needed or wanted even 50 years ago. Yeah. It turns out to be a pretty basic thing. And so um, we, you could say we invented that desire because the difference between inventing and discovering something when you have a high dimensions is, is it's topologically equal. So um, we will in discover or invent plenty of new desires with this, using this new technology that we had no idea that we desired. And from that desire will come so many new occupations. Hmm. Thanks. That was a great answer. Uh, Kevin, I understand that you recently traveled to India. And in fact, I saw some great photos that you produced. Uh, it's the home of my tradition, the Vedic tradition, a place I've spent many years of my life. And I'm curious whether you came away from there with anything like a spiritual practice. And if so, would you like to share with our listeners what that may be? India didn't do that to me. I spent... Uh, my younger youth, I spent an awful lot of time in India um, and it never triggered the things that it has done for other people. Um, I, um, you know, I go there to witness the, the spectacle, I guess I would call it, <laughs> and uh, to get a whack on the side of the head. But... Uh, no, it, it never, um, it, it, it didn't work in that dimension on me. What would you say your personal spiritual practices are? My personal spiritual practice these days is, uh, are uh, to teach as much of what I've learned to as many worthy inquirers as I can. I don't like teaching to people who haven't evinced any uh, deep interest in what I have to teach. Now, leading up to this, growing into this state where I feel as though I have a lot to offer as a teacher, I practiced Vedic meditation twice every day for, you know, something like 45, 48 years, something approaching 50 years. And, uh, and what I now learn is a continuous finessing of how to get ideas across as a response to worthy inquiry. If no one's asked me anything, I'm not a proselytizer or on a mission to evangelize anybody. But if somebody does have an interest, to be able to get the right kind of information across in a very accurate way 
uh, and to communicate. That's that finessing is constantly going on, and I find that finessing fascinating. It's a fascinating part of my spiritual practice today. What is the point of having a spiritual practice? I think the only point of it. There's only one point, and the point of it is a more and more accurate assessment of what you are, of who you are. That's what spirit means. Spirit is essence. And so spiritual means the experience of that essence. If people say they're spiritual, but they don't have any way of isolating the knower, that is to say experiencing the knower rather than the known. You know, we have three things, knower, knowing, and known. If we're engaged in the knowing and we're engaged in the known all the time, then we have repetition. If, on the other hand, we isolate the experience of the knower, experience of self, then we have a satisfactory sense of who am I, what am I? I think what am I is far more fascinating than who am I. Uh, What is the nature of this experiencer? What is the nature of the consciousness that's witnessing all these things? That's the value of having a spiritual practice. If we don't know that, and this is the Aristotelian demand going back thousands of years. Aristotle called this the first science, knowledge of the knower. If you don't have knowledge of the knower, all other sciences are worthless. Kevin, is there anything that you would like our listeners to... I'm doing this book called Vanishing Asia, which is recording the disappearing traditions celebrations, uh, uh, you know, um, everything else that's disappearing in Asia between Asia, between Turkey and Japan, including uh, a lot of India. That's fascinating. When, when do you expect your book will be available? A couple more years. I'm finishing up the, um, some of the places I've not been to. I just came back from um, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, um, because that central Asia part I had, um, not been able to get to earlier and um you know it's a it's a big it's a big essential part of asia well if uh if i don't connect with you here in the west which is a possibility um in person face to face uh perhaps someday we'll connect in india and i'll get a chance to spend a few minutes showing you some of the things i learned from the masters in the himalayas i think that would be a an enjoyable fun thing to show you and and is it is your book largely uh, it, is it um, more text or are there a lot of photos of things that we? It's all photos. That's fantastic. How much of your year do you spend traveling as uh, opposed to trying to stay put in one place and <laughs> and getting work done? These days it's a little lopsided because most of my audience, most of my fans, I should say, are in China, mm. and so I go to China a lot to talk. And whenever I go, I try to piggyback on um, additional um, travels. Mm. So um, I haven't worked out exactly what the numbers are, but maybe a third um, of of my time because I I will, you know, I really hate to fly somewhere and turn around and come back. So I do want to take extra time. Um, And Asia is huge and there's still despite, you know, 40 years of, of doing this, there's still places I haven't been to. You might be amused to hear that uh, I was riding around in New Delhi in one of those little tuk-tuks with a banker from the West who'd never been to India, and he looked over at me in all the chaos of New Delhi traffic and said, 
to you, what's the main difference between this and, you know, Western countries? And I said, one word, sustainability. Um, you know, we have an idea that the way we do things in the West is sustainable, and yet we have very little evidence that it is. These people have been here for thousands of years, and I'll bet you they'll still be here thousands of years hence. And we, we, we don't have any evidence that we will be necessarily. We here in America, wherever, tend to think of Central Asia as the most remote place on the planet. It's this double landlocked um, countries, you know, far from any ocean. But from their perspective, they're at the center. It's Central Asia. They're at the center of the universe. They've been farming there for 6,000 years. Everybody has come through. And they don't get this idea that they're remote. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's you guys who are out on the fringe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Kevin, I've, uh, I'm very appreciative of your mind and your thinking, and uh, you've certainly created all kinds of new questions. Perhaps we should have a part two one day. Thank you for your great questions. As you know, part of my book, I emphasize the fact that um, questions are more valuable than answers. Mm. That's one of the questioning uh, trends is that uh, if you want to answer, ask a machine. What humans are good at will be asking questions. And thank you for your great questions. I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's been really fun. All the best to you. Our listeners, uh, how do they find you? Or yeah, so my home page is my initials, kk.org. I'm not that active on social media, but I do occasionally post on Twitter. I'm Kevin2, number two, Kelly. And I have my, besides the book, which just came out in paperback called The Inevitable, I do a weekly um, one-page newsletter, we call it, that has six recommendations, six brief recommendations of cool stuff that I'm listening to, watching. It's me and, and Mark Fornfelder from Boing Boing and Claudia who works here at Cool Tools. So it's like stuff that we recommend, tips or places to go, stuff to see, listen to, music, eat, whatever. Um, and it's a free newsletter. You can sign up at Recommendo with one M, recommendo.com. Thank you again for your time. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you for having me. Jay Gurudev. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you. <laughs>